Hello and welcome to episode 121 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Alegi, and I've just come back from the 61st annual meeting of the United States African Studies Association in Atlanta. While I was there, I had the opportunity to interview two distinguished scholars on my iPad about refugees in African history, the subject of a special forum coming out soon in the African Studies Review, the official journal of the ASA, which I'm one of the editors of. So let me introduce my two distinguished guests. Bonnie Ibawo is professor of history and global human rights at McMaster University in Canada. His brand new book is titled Human Rights in Africa. It's part of the New Approaches to African History series by Cambridge University Press. His other books include Imperial Justice, Africans in Empire's Court, published by Oxford University Press in 2013, and Imperialism and Human Rights, Colonial Discourses of Rights and Liberties in African History, SUNY Press, 2007. Professor Ibawo has taught in universities in Africa, Europe, and North America. He was a fellow at the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs in New York, and a research fellow at the Danish Institute for Human Rights in Copenhagen. Christian Williams is a senior lecturer in anthropology at the University of the Free State in South Africa. He is the author of National Liberation in Postcolonial Southern Africa, a historical ethnography of Swapo's exile camps, published by Cambridge University Press in 2015. His research articles have appeared in the journal Southern African Studies, African Studies, and other journals. He has held fellowships from the Center for Humanities Research at the University of the Western Cape, as well as from South Africa's National Research Foundation. Welcome, Christian Williams and Bonnie Ibao, to Africa Past and Present. Uh, we usually start these conversations by asking you to tell us and the listeners a little bit about yourselves and how do you came to study um, the topics that you are an expert on. So maybe we can start with you, Christian. Sure. So I grew up in the United States, and uh, as a college student at, at Yale University, I was very interested in international issues and interested in, in, in doing service work when I graduated from school. And um, I, I thought I might volunteer uh, somewhere overseas, but I, I took an African studies class, actually an anthropology of Africa class that really shaped my interest in colonialism and its aftermath in Africa. So suddenly, I didn't just want to go anywhere. I wanted to go to Africa and to Southern Africa. And I had a German background, and so that, all of that led me to Namibia. And I, I signed up to be a, a volunteer with World Teach to teach English as a second language. And I was sent to a, a mission school in, in Southern Namibia, uh, where I taught for three years. And my interest in, in exile and refugees really was generated at that, at that site. At first, it began as a, as a school project. I, I taught at a school that had trained uh, an intelligentsia for an entire region of, of Namibia. And also, a, a lot of political activists came out of the school. In fact, the, the first generation of Namibians from that part of the country to travel into exile. And... And so I was engaging with these individuals because they were uh, 
uh, a well-educated uh, um, group of people that had a lot of access to resources, and I thought that they might be able to draw from their experiences and resources and bring them into the school. But what I learned in the process was a lot about their experiences both of activism in the 1970s and then in, in exile. And I started to, to hear um, their stories alongside what I had learned about the national narrative of Namibia's liberation struggle. And there were uh, major discrepancies between their experiences and, and the national narrative. And I started to see how how uh, their experiences um, and what was, was and was not being said about exile was shaping their lives and the lives of, uh, of people in this community where I started, uh, where I was working. And that's what uh, took over my, my life and, and drew me into to studying about exile and refugee issues. Excellent. Bonnie? Yes, uh, similar trajectory here. Uh, I'm originally from Nigeria. I do international human rights, but uh, how did I get into human rights? Uh, well, I graduated from university in the uh, you know, early 90s, late 80s, and it was a difficult time, uh, not just in Nigeria, but in most countries in Africa. This was the post-Cold War years. Uh, Nigeria was under a particularly brutal military dictator, um, Babangida, who uh, basically suppressed, uh, you know, uh, most dissenting opinion. Uh, as a young uh, academic, I graduated, I was retained as what's called a graduate assistant in the Nigerian university system, that's like a, a teaching assistant. But I saw very clearly the need to uh, talk about issues of justice and equity, uh, and so I started talking about human rights, and that drove me towards you know issues of human rights, human rights history. And then something interesting happened. Uh, the government of Babangida decided that the university were producing too many dissidents, and they closed my university. So here I was, a young graduate uh, with a new job, doing human rights, with no job. Uh, and that took me on a fellowship to the Danish National Center for Human Rights in Copenhagen, where I got a fellowship, and then to the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies as an associate member, and then ultimately to the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs in New York. I took a PhD at Dalhousie, and yeah, I started teaching and doing human rights history. So I come from a bit of think tank activist background, but, and I try to bring that to the academic work I do on human rights. Excellent. And you both are contributors to a special forum that is forthcoming in the African Studies Review Journal, uh, which is the official journal of the United States-based African Studies Association, on refugees in African history. Can you give us a general overview on your motivations for putting this important forum together and maybe a little bit about uh, who the other contributors are? Sure. So there is a very paradoxical relationship, I think, between refugees and, and history in that there is a lot of discourse about refugees. It's obviously it's very heightened, uh, very politically tense discourse, increasingly so. And yet the more that people are talking about refugees, the, the more that the, there's a gravitation towards talking about the present and little mm -hmm. focus on the past and ways that displaced people and transnational migrants more generally have been categorized and managed uh, over over time and so and yet 
Um, clearly, these paths matter. They matter in the story that I shared about my own background. They matter for many uh, displaced uh, communities. And many researchers have noted how important histories of, of migration are important for refugees them, themselves uh, and, and other displaced people of other names. So um, it's for this reason that we thought it would be beneficial to try to, to focus on historicizing refugees, and particularly from an Africanist perspective, because there are many refugee flows uh, uh, generated from Africa. Many uh, host countries of refugees are in Africa, despite the Euro-American focus of a lot of the the public discourse, and, and, and through this issue we'd like to draw attention both to particular displaced communities and their, and their histories, as well as the history of the term refugee itself and related terms, because we tend to think that the, we have ideas about what the word refugee means, but uh, it hasn't been the same over time, and people use it in very many ways in the present, and that's what we're trying to draw out in this forum. So yeah, just to follow up on Kristen's point, uh, the w one of my key uh, interests in this subject is uh, what I've described as the politics of labeling, you know, the mm -hmm. origins and the history behind the term uh, refugee. I mean, like human rights, the term refugee conveys power, it conveys privilege, it conveys legitimacy. Uh, refugee, uh, to be designated a refugee in today's world comes with a slew of uh, privileges and all that, as opposed to, say, being designated an internally displaced person. Mm -hmm. uh, so given that this language have, uh, has become uh, so influential in, 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 in the lives of displaced persons and involuntary and voluntary migrants, we thought that one of the things we could focus on in this uh, special edition was to draw attention to the contingent and contested nature of this terminology, and both in an informal sense in which the term is used, but also in the more formal policy uh, international law framework in which the term is used. And so let's talk about your specific contributions, uh, because they're quite different, and they speak to many of the concerns you just raised. So, Bonnie, you're writing about refugees of the Biafran War, devastating conflict, of course, in Nigeria from 1967 to 1970. That's a very particular kind of refugee crisis, as opposed to what, Christian, you're writing about, which is the um, related to the Namibian liberation struggle and the camps uh, throughout southern Africa. So uh, those are refugees of a, of a different kind. They are participants in a liberation war. So maybe, Bonnie, tell us about your contribution, and then we'll ask Christian the same. Yeah, so I, th I think the Biafran crisis uh, is very central to how the international refugee protection system has evolved. Uh, regrettably, it hasn't uh, attracted the kind of attention that I think it should in the discourse. Uh, so you just talked about the conflict, this devastating Biafran war in which um, uh, thousands were displaced uh, from the country, uh, many were killed. It is estimated that a million people died directly from the conflict or, the, or out of starvation and, and all the illnesses. But one of the interesting fallouts of this conflict was that a number of uh, displaced persons found themselves in neighboring African countries, specifically in Gabon and in the Ivory Coast, Cote d'Ivoire, 
But what I'm interested in is the international debate about how to designate these displaced persons. Of course, the international refugee system is framed so much by national boundaries. Mm. Uh, if, if a displaced person crosses an international boundary, uh, they're designated a refugee. If they're within national boundaries, they're displaced persons. But, well, what do you do uh, with a secessionist state? Uh, that is recognized by some countries and not others. Uh, and this would be the, the Republic of Biafra. In this would case. be the Republic of Biafra, which was recognized by Gabon, uh, accepting quite a number of uh, refugees, they call them, uh, and Ivory Coast, accepting some Biafran refugees. But on the other hand, you had the Nigerian government that adamantly rejected the label of refugees for these uh, displaced persons, insisting that they were first Nigerians, because uh, the nation of Biafra did not exist as far as they were concerned, but also in the case of the children uh, that were taken away, evacuated from the war zones, that these children had been uh, forcibly removed from Nigerian territory. So you see very two polarizing discourse on the, of displacement, uh, one by Nigerian state that insisted that these were just evacuees, temporary evacuees and displaced persons, exiles, definitely not refugee, and a secessionist Biafran state that insisted uh, that these were refugees fleeing a genocidal war by the Nigerian government. And at the heart of all this was the international system, the UNHCR, that had to tiptoe around these discourses. Of course, the UN did not recognize Biafra. So the UNHCR was in a very precarious position. So I'm looking at how this particular incident reflects the contestations and the politics, what I call the international politics of refugee naming, that characterize the conflict. In my case, I, I focus generally in my work on Namibians displaced in the frontline states. And a lot of the focus of my, my previous work has been on the camps that uh, SWAPO, the Namibian Liberation Movement, administered in the, in the frontline states. And, and these camps um, were spaces that I would say are, these are sites where, uh, from which SWAPO was uh, conducting its liberation war. And there were people in these sites who were trained as guerrilla fighters, and there were people in these sites who were not trained as guerrilla, guerrilla fighters. And in the context of the frontline states, this uh, was in line with a, the way that a refugee was, was rendered, because at the, at the time of, of Southern Africa's liberation wars, and especially in the, in the early period, the frontline states crafted their own discourse around who a refugee was, and in that discourse, a refugee and a freedom fighter were not, uh, uh, they, these, these categories were not contradictions to each other. They were, in fact, a blended uh, category. As soon as someone in the 1960s came into Tanzania's borders from one of the countries in southern Africa under white minority regimes, including Namibia, that person was a refugee, but that person was also perceived as a, as a freedom fighter. Part of what I write about in, in my book on national liberation in southern Africa is the way in which Distinguishing between refugee and freedom fighter becomes politically salient for Namibians at a given point in time. The most uh, uh, significant case of this being the case of Kisinga, the camp in Angola that was attacked by the South African Defense Force in 1978, in which there was a big debate about whether it was a refugee camp or a liberation movement camp. Now, 
that's the background that I'm coming from in writing about this topic. In terms of my particular contribution to this issue, I've become increasingly interested in life stories of individuals and, and the stories that do not conform to the way that nationalist discourse presents it. So my starting point is the way that individuals are presented in national histories in Southern Africa, histories of liberation struggle, in which exile is a very significant category. And we have understanding about uh, assumptions from the start about why someone travels into exile, what they're doing there, why they return uh, tr uh, to their country of origin, or if they, what it means if they don't return to their country of origin, etc. But refugee is another nationalist uh, discourse that prefigures why someone is there and what their movements mean. And so in, the, in the, my paper for this forum, I'm writing about a single person, a, a woman named Muazo Nakadilu, whose story defies a lot of the expectations that people have for an exile, in particular um, a, a Namibian exile, especially a child of the liberation struggle. This is a, a, a loaded term in Namibia. It's a very significant term in the, in the politics of claim making on the Namibian state in which children who were born of Namibians in exile uh, have made requests and claims on the Swapo-led Namibian government, things that they feel that they deserve in the post-colonial nation. And, and yet the, this person at the center of my story was not born of two Namibians in exile, was born of a Tanzanian mother and a Namibian father. So, so let me stop you there just briefly, because what was the relationship like between uh, the uh, neighboring villages uh, and communities and the people in the camps? Because this suggests a very close relationship, but potentially also a very tense one, as your story reveals later on. Now, what happens to... This, uh, this young woman. A very close relationship. It's often thought that people were at these sites in exile and they were just passing through. That's the way that people talked about them. But in the case of many of these camps and the one that this woman, uh, where this woman was born, uh, the Namibians were there for seven years. And, and part of mm -hmm. uh, being in this site, uh, it's, the camp is called Kongwa in, in central Tanzania, um, part of being at this site uh, for that length of time with the uh, guerrillas who are unable to infiltrate their country of origin, a feeling that the, the struggle is, you know, is, is getting stuck, was making a home at that site. Sure. And so there were very close relationships close between Namibians and other Southern Africans yeah. in many of these camps and the local people. And, and Mwaza Nakadila was born of a Namibian uh, freedom fighter man and a Tanzanian woman and, and part of the, a very complex series of relationships that developed alongside many of these camps. So would you consider her Tanzanian or Namibian? Yeah, well, that's that, an interesting question. That's the question, right? And, and she herself grew up for 11 years without knowledge of her Namibian father who was moved away to another site as many of these yeah. guerrillas were um, at a moment's notice. So she uh, saw herself, I mean, she, she spoke Kiswahili, she spoke Kigogo, the local language, and then 11 years later, uh, Swapo came to the site where uh, her aunt, the a woman who was raising her, lived and, and said, it's time to, to join uh, your liberation movement. And the, and the father was there as well, whom she did not know. And at that moment, I don't know if she saw herself as Tanzanian, but she certainly didn't see herself as Namibian. And she had all the upbringing of a Tanzanian in that part of Tanzania. So. 
And that defies the way that yeah. people usually think about exile, because exile is a, you know, first of all, Moazo's father was making a home in the place of, of exile. Yeah. And then this, this woman was growing up in a country that the international community did not recognize as her home or her homeland, but it was her home. And then the next thing that happens is that she's moved with Swapo to other places, eventually to a camp in, in Zambia. And, and she is there with who are supposedly her, her people, and she does come to identify with Namibians, but at first she doesn't speak the local language, she isn't familiar with the culture, and that um, creates a lot of dynamics for her and many others, because she is not an isolated case. There are very many Southern Africans who are born of transnational mm -hmm. parentage during the struggle era period. And so these complications, how do they compare with the refugees of the political war, uh, the crisis of Biafra. And you also write about children. Yes, so my contribution to this uh, volume focuses on the 4,000 uh, Biafran children uh, that were evacuated from the war zones to Gabon and uh, Ivory Coast uh, between uh, 1968 and uh, late 1969. And we encounter similar, you know, issues of, of identity. In fact, uh, the opening story that opens my, my article uh, goes to the Berta movement in, in, in Gabon. Uh, in 2015, just as uh, President Obama was uh, confronting a Berta movement in the United States that suggested he hadn't been born in the United <laughs> States and had in fact been born in Kenya, uh, the Central African country of Gabon was in the midst of its own better movement. And the better movement was that uh, the sitting president, Ali uh, Omar Bongo, uh, Odima, was uh, not in fact a Gabonese, <laughs> and was in fact a Nigerian. Uh, one of the 4,000 uh, Biafran children uh, evacuated to Gabon in the 60s. As the story goes, uh, the then President Uma Bongo had uh, adopted uh, a young Ali among these uh, Biafran children. Uh, and, and, and so this, this story actually came about uh, from the opposition trying to challenge the legitimacy of the sitting president. Uh, the, 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 the point I'm interested in really is not whether this is true or not, but that the fact that these issues, these questions of... Uh, uh, evacuated children continues to resonate, that there were, in fact, children uh, from Biafra who never returned back to Nigeria uh, following the uh, uh, repatriation orchestrated by the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugee uh, in the late 1968, uh, 69, and 70s. Uh, these children became part of uh, Gabonese society, in fact, as late as 2015, the UNHCR could report that up to 2,000, uh, you know, Biafrans, as they're called, still remain in many of these uh, countries. Many of them uh, have become part of their communities, have become integrated within the community. And so, I, just like Kristen mentioned, the question about social mobility and integration, and I think most importantly, identity, comes into place with these uh, uh, migrants. Uh, because in the unique case 
of, of the Biafran refugee soon after the end of the war in 1970, the Nigerian government insisted that all these displaced persons and, and uh, unaccompanied minors be returned back to, to Nigeria and, and forcefully worked with the UNHCR to get these, these people back to Nigeria. But like I said, not everyone went back, and, and many of these uh, refugees lived within the countries, and, and, and still the issues of uh, identities continue in the debate. Sadly, in our world today, there are tens of millions of refugees in multiple crises, not just in Africa, of course, but elsewhere. How do you both see um, this, these histories that you reconstruct informing sort of how we understand today's crises and maybe how policymakers and, and others can address them? What are the lessons we can learn, in other words, from your scholarship? I have two thoughts on that. One is, is directly focused on the Southern African context in which I work, um, and that is there are a lot of people whose experiences are not um, part of the public discourse, um, whose uh, suffering has not been engaged uh, in, in Southern Africa, um, who cross borders in ways that are outside of the way that people imagine that it should have been done. Um, when when Mwazo um, Nakadilo eventually was repatriated to Namibia at the time of Namibian independence, it was very difficult for her to integrate into Namibian society. Mm. It was difficult in some ways that overlapped with many Namibians who had lived in exile and who were returning, but it was also difficult in ways which extended beyond that because her relationship to family in Namibia was precarious. There were issues around inheritance. Um, there were issues around where home should be and who, what her social networks were. And so raising these issues uh, you know, uh, speaks to topics that uh, Southern African governments and, and frontline state governments should be able to engage with. And people like Moazo have had very, want to, in Moazo's case specifically, she would like to return to Tanzania. And she has not, she's had a very difficult time being able to engage with family on, on that side, a lot of um, uh, difficulties that she's faced. And I think it's very important for the public to be aware of these things so that you know, she can have a chance to engage and, and, and make community as would be good for her. Beyond uh, her case and others in, in Southern Africa that have similar stories to hers, I think, you know, more, more generally, um, the, the discourse on refugees presently, as I said at the start, is very, it's very much focused on the now, and there isn't much imagination for how things have come to where they are. To, to think from the Southern African uh, liberation struggles and the way that countries define the freedom fighter refugees, to speak to contexts uh, which can open our imagination for different ways in which people can engage with, with refugees. and, and uh, and I think, and, and, and the way that the terms, um, what they have meant over, over time, I think, I think that these histories can open our imagination for different ways that we might engage in the future with these kinds of issues. And also, they speak to the limits of our nationalist logics, mm. because refugee is very much linked to 
international sovereignty and the whole international system that we're in. And we have all these assumptions about who one is and what we should do with them because of nationalist logics. And, and we need to be able to think outside of these, these logics. And so engaging with these stories can help us to, to think outside of the, the ways that we are used to seeing international issues. Just to add to Kristen's point, I think uh, one of the all around the capitals in, in, in Europe and, and to some extent the United States, the debate on the southern border about refugees really highlights uh, the the urgency and, and the importance of this topic. I think it's important to historicize uh, the, the the long history of, of, of a refugee protection system and the contested nature of that system. Uh, a key theme for me is empathy, uh, that people realize that although certain countries today might be key refugee-producing nations, there was once a time where the largest refugee humanitarian crisis in the world was in Europe. Uh, in fact, the international refugee system developed as a result of the refugee and you know crisis of nationalism in post-war Europe. It was to attend specifically to these thousands and thousands of people displaced by the Second World War. That was the original framework for what we now call the international refugee system. Biafra is significant because it turned out to be the first uh, intervention by the UNHCR outside of Europe. Up until then, the first two decades of the UNHCR, it was preoccupied with what was then called uh, the refugee question in Europe. Eastern Europe, Central Europe, the Balkans. Uh, so I think it is remembered to provide this history to politicians and policymakers in capitals in Europe and North America and other parts of the Western world engaged in this debate to remind them that this is not uh, North African, Mediterranean, or Mexican issue. It has historically been an international one, a global one. Uh, and I think that brings uh, empathy to the table. It brings an internationalist perspective to the table. And I think it's one that will serve the current debate well, uh, which I would agree with Kristen has been very presentist, has been very insular, and has been driven by the weave of exclusionary nationalist populism uh, that we see sweeping across the world today. Well, that's a, an extremely eloquent way of concluding, perhaps, this uh, wonderful, wide-ranging conversation. Uh, Christian Williams and Bonnie Ibabo, thank you very much for speaking with Africa Past and Present. Thank, thank you. you. You're welcome. Thank you for the good work. It's great to be here. <laughs> Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast.com at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening. <laughs>